You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a restful New Year away from your friends and loved ones. I spent five hours on a video chat with my friends getting drunk, and as a result, I'm recording this the day before this episode releases instead of the usual Friday. Bad Caitlin. To kick 2021 off, we're switching gears a little bit and trying something new. I don't know if this will work, but hey, it's only five weeks and I'll give it my best shot. For January, we're doing our first technical month where we'll be covering not only the history, but the job descriptions of several different occupations within film. This month, I'll be covering the four probably most well-known positions and one of the least regarded but integral parts to the process. These will be the director, producer, screenwriter, editor, and then the entire sound process to wrap up the month. This week, we're covering the history and responsibilities of the director, the figurehead member of the film crew responsible for creating a cohesive vision with the film. Before we go forward, just in case there's any confusion for those of you who may not work in entertainment, keep in mind that this episode describes the roles and responsibilities of a film director. A television director has slightly altered responsibilities due to the fact that the consistency of a show, of a television show, is overseen by a showrunner. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Directing is one of the oldest professions in film after producer and actor. Going back as far back as possible historically, the role of director likely originated in theater in the 4th century BCE with Greek orator Demosthenes. He is said to have given acting lessons to the actor Paulus, who was famous in his day for his work in tragedies. Their work set a precedent going forward within the theater that one of the more experienced actors would instruct their greener colleagues. Also in ancient Greek theater, playwrights would train their chorus and actors. Later, medieval religious plays had either individual or group directors. This practice continued for centuries until the 1800s, when it became clear that actors needed someone overseeing the big picture that wasn't necessarily also traipsing the boards alongside. While closer to an art director by modern standards of the title, the German theater employed someone called an intendant, whom was responsible for ensuring the quality of production elements, like costumes, sets, and props, and that all of these elements were in keeping with the mood of the production they were trying to put on. The first professional director with the responsibilities that would soon be adopted by the film industry was likely Madame Vestris, 
Madame Vestris oversaw acting, decor, sound effects, and lighting of the productions for the Olympic Theater in London starting around 1830. Back in Germany, the beginning of directing in this region is most often associated with the Meninigen players starting in 1874. Under the direction of Ludwig Kronig, I apologize for these pronunciations, I'm doing my best, the group worked as a unit, setting an example of effective, realistic ensemble playing. Leading realistic directors of the late 19th century included André Antoine in France, Otto Brahm in Germany, and Konstantin Stanislavski in Russia. The most modernly known of these directors was probably Stanislavski, who stressed ensemble acting and the importance of the actor's absolute identification with their roles, which would shape how many actors and directors work together to this day. As the job of director became more and more prevalent within theater, as it would be with film, so too did creative movements within the art form. All over the world in the 1800s, movements like the Theater of Significance and Theater of Entertainment allowed directing to move on from overseeing actors to a full-blown creative art form. The first film directors were the inventors of the cameras that captured them. Thomas Edison built the Black Mariah Studio in New Jersey, where he and his assistant and one-day competitor W.K. Dixon would create short films. The Lumiere brothers would take to the streets of Paris to capture everyday occurrences of the era, like trains entering stations and workers leaving factories. These were the first films. As film became more and more advanced and the medium became a storytelling tool, not just a form of sideshow entertainment, film directors in the modern sense began to emerge. Edwin S. Porter was hired by Thomas Edison in 1899. Soon after, he took control of the production of Edison Pictures, overseeing the actor's production and the completion of the Edison films. Porter is considered to be the first American film director. His short, The Great Train Robbery, would be cited by many of the major studio heads in the 1910s and 20s as their inspiration for entering the film industry. Edwin would introduce many different camera angles and nonlinear editing techniques, the latter of which we'll discuss in a few weeks. But all of this, but all of this led to film as we know it today. The role of director has shifted in influence and power over the last 80 years or so, depending on the era in which a film was being made. When sound became the standard in film, the screenwriters became the most important individual when it came to what a film was about, as well as its message. In the 60s, however, this prominence shifted back to the director when the French New Wave's influence reached the States. One of the hallmarks of this movement was crediting the director as the artist of the film, much like one would credit a painter for his painting. This notion is pretty much maintained to the modern day. I'm sure even some of you more casual film fans can probably name far more directors than you can screenwriters, not counting the ones that do both, of course. So, this is where the job of director came from, but what does a director do exactly? We'll talk about it after the break. Alright guys, we're going to try a picture on this. Let's get everybody one, please. Alright guys, pictures up. Pictures up! Pictures up! Let's roll sound. Rolling! Rolling! Sound speeds. Camera speeds. Two. Awesome. Take two. Mark. And action! So now that you know how the job started, what are the modern responsibilities? Well, here it is in its most basic form, from development to the film reaching the screen. For the purposes of this, we're going to assume the director also wrote the project they are slated to direct. 
Once a script has been written, or in some rare cases, especially if you're more established, just a treatment, and the producers that have come on board the project have managed to find the funding, it's on to the pre-production phase. It is here that if the director didn't write the script, they would be able to provide tweaks to it to match what they have in mind for the project. Again, this also depends on the contract between the screenwriter and the production company that purchased the script. That is very nuanced. We'll touch on it a little bit in about two weeks. Some of these script changes may be creative, but especially in the independent filmmaking world, may come down to budget restraints, an additional reason that the script might be changed. In pre-production, the producers and director get together to work on a budget that will provide the director with the means to achieve their vision while, hopefully, not going over budget. This will include costs for every single person that will eventually be employed on the project, as well as things like locations, props, costumes, transportation, accommodations if needed, catering, and even marketing. During pre-production, a team of creative heads will be added to the team depending on what is required to complete the film and, of course, what the budget will allow. These include a cinematographer, production designer, sound, assistant director, editorial, etc. They will begin working together to ensure that all of them are supplementing the tone and vision set forth by the director. These department heads will also typically hire the members of their own departments, Next, you'll need your actors. This is typically achieved through the work of a casting director. The script by this point will have been broken down, and there will be a list of every speaking role within the film, as well as descriptions for what the director wants and or needs from the actor that eventually winds up with the role. This can happen throughout pre-production and sometimes development process. For example, if the project is able to acquire a well-known name, they will likely be able to acquire further funding from other places. Now that the crew has been assembled and hired, the contracts have been signed, the equipment rented, the locations have either been secured and or built, the actors have costumes, you've got insurance because you always need insurance, it's time to make a movie. The majority of a director's day-to-day -day during production will primarily be working with the actors as the departments have for the most part already been built, assembled, and set up. The process of directing actors, as we've gone over in some parts earlier, is objective. As actors have a myriad of ways of getting into character and preparing for performance, a lot of this has to do with their training, personal preferences, what have you. This requires the director to figure out how to guide each actor to the performance they require for the overall tone of the film. The director is always looking at the big picture. There is give and take, of course, with this, as it is a collaborative process. And there are many anecdotal stories out there that have come out through the years of actors and the directors having intense and in some cases loud disagreements about their performances. When a film is shot, it is now time to piece together the puzzle. The director and the editor will assemble a director's cut of the film typically first, which, if you believe the Artur role of the director like the French do, yields the purest image of the film. There will also be producer's cuts as they oversaw and obtained the money, and depending on contracts and studio involvement and how big the film is, the studios are going to get their own cut as well. If you're Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise gets a cut. That's why The Mummy was terrible. These cuts are refined and altered and tweaked and this, that, and the other until a final cut is agreed upon. With a locked picture comes sound design, sound effects, and music. The director will work with the engineers, composers, and all those guys providing feedback. More on this in a few weeks. Once all of this is done, the film will be color corrected. Boom. Film. It has been made. 
Of course, this is a very crude step-by-step of what happens. And sometimes, especially in indie productions, there can be extra bumps along the way. This is just the base. This is what a director does. So now that you know what a director does, more or less, how does one become a director? I became obsessed with filming and directing and, you know, Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And I was always fascinated with the process of filmmaking. And, you know, I grew up in Boston, which is on the other end of the country from Hollywood. And, you know, people would say to me, oh, you'll never make it. You know, you have to be born there. You have to know someone. And I remember being literally, you know, 13 years old at my bar mitzvah when the rabbi has to say what everyone's what you're going to do with your life and he said Eli Roth is here today he's bar mitzvah and he's going to be a I remember I'm like adjusting his glasses going a motion picture producer director The answer to the question before the break is that there is no answer, as there is not a straight path or guaranteed steps you can take to get into the director's chair. Some film directors start out as screenwriters, film editors, producers, actors, or even film critics, or even directed for similar media like television, music videos, or commercials. Several American cinematographers, which is the person in charge of the camera department, have become directors, famously Barry Sonnenfeld, who was originally the Coen Brothers' DP, and Wally Pfister, who was the DP on Christopher Nolan's three Batman films, who made his directorial debut with Transcendence in 2014, for better or worse. A common misconception in American cinema is that an assistant director leads directly to the director's chair. In reality, the role of assistant director has become a completely separate career path and is not typically a position for aspiring directors as it tends to be more administrative than creative. But there are exceptions in some countries such as India where assistant directors are actually directors in training. Many film directors have attended film school to get a bachelor's degree studying film or cinema. Many then go on for a master's as well. Film students generally study the basic skills of production, for example, shot lists, storyboards, blocking, communicating with professional actors, communicating with the crew, and reading scripts. They also, of course, make short films because you got to start stretching those muscles. You also study the history of film and, in some cases, like I did, photography. Some film schools are equipped with sound stages and post-production facilities to supplement this. Besides basic technical and logistical skills, students will also hopefully receive an education on the nature of professional relationships that occur during film production. That's if you go to a decent school, not all of them have that. A full degree course can be designed for up to five years of studying. Future directors usually complete short films during their enrollment, culminating in a thesis film. The National Film School of Denmark even has the students' final projects presented on national TV. If you're looking into film school as an education pathway, one thing to keep in mind when looking at schools is that some of them will retain the rights to their students' works, such as USC. So that is something to consider. A school like USC also has many professional hookups, so there is a give and take in that regard, as who you know, real important for entertainment. In recent decades, American directors have primarily been coming out of USC, UCLA, AFI, Columbia University, and NYU, each of which are known for cultivating a certain style of filmmaking. Notable film schools outside of the United States include Beijing Film Academy, Dongseo University in South Korea, FAMU in Prague, Film and Television Institute of India, HFF Munich, La Famille in Paris, Tel Aviv University, and the Vancouver Film School. 
even with all of that education, at the end of the day, there's no tried and true pathway to becoming a director. Not even the college you go to is a guarantee of a successful career. But on the other side of the coin, if you have an idea, the finances and basic equipments, you can make a film. For achievement in directing, the director's branch of the Academy nominates The Irishman, Martin Scorsese. Joker, Todd Phillips. 1917, Sam Mendes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino. And Parasite. Bong Joon-ho. Nice. I did it. I did, did it. it. Thank you so much. You did it. Congratulations to those men. In the modern era, the director is the one most likely to be given overall credit for the success or failure of a film, despite outside forces generally acting upon it. Historically, these roles have gone to men and continue to do so. As a result, we've come to see a sizable diversity problem when it comes to whom gets to direct. The majority of film directors are male, making up about 84.7% of all available jobs. On top of that, 60% of all film directors are Caucasian. This is a pretty sizable disparity, especially when looking at the demographics of moviegoers. For example, 51% of moviegoers are female, but only a little over 13% of the films they get to see are directed by women. When looking at race, 59% of all moviegoers are Caucasian. 20% are Hispanic, 12% are African American, and 8% are Asian or other, according to motionpictures.org. This diversity problem can especially be seen when looking at one of the top awards for directors. In its 92-year history, the Oscars have only ever nominated five women for the Best Director Oscar, with only one, Catherine Bigelow, for The Hurt Locker in 2010, winning the award. Female directors made only 12% of the top-grossing films of 2019, and it has nothing to do with subject matter, merely the offers that they are given. While this number is on the rise, it's a long way to go before we see those numbers balancing out anywhere near what would be considered equality. On top of that, no female people of color have ever been nominated for Best Director. The most famous sin of omission in recent years has to be Ava DuVernay and her direction of the film Selma. DuVernay was nominated for Best Director at every other major film awards ceremony, but was snubbed when it came to the Oscars. Selma was one of the highest-rated films of the year, and its performance is praised by multiple critics. But at the end of the day, the film was only nominated for Best Song, which it did win, and was nominated for Best Picture. When it comes to people of color, the numbers aren't much better. Five Latin American directors have been nominated, with three, Alfonso Cuaron twice, Alejandro Iñárritu twice, and Guillermo del Toro having one. Five Asian directors have been nominated, with two, Ang Lee twice, and Bong Joon-ho winning. Six Black directors have been nominated, yet none have ever won. That means the other 83 years have all gone to white men. Not to crap on the white dudes, but if this was any other industry, there would be far more of an uproar than there has even in the most recent years. So, you might be asking yourself, why does this matter and why did I bring it up in this episode? Well, it comes down to one simple thing, representation. Film gives us the opportunity to tell stories 
And right now, only one kind of person's experience is really being explored in any meaningful cinematic way. The Oscars are supposed to be the apex of filmmaking, but truly it's only really been celebrating one demographic of a filmmaker. Filmmaking is an international art form. With the Academy announcing their new criteria for diversity late last year, requiring a certain percentage of roles on the crew to be filled by the less prominently employed demographics, including women, because women are considered a minority in cinema regardless of race, true change is not going to be seen until others are given the chance to literally call the shots. Not to mention the stories these individuals have the potential to tell. And I mean, really, how many more reboots do we actually need? Action. Don't worry about the script. We're shooting it on the red. We're trying to edit this quickly so we can submit it to Sundance. All the best actors come from Craigslist. This will be bigger than Avatar. Okay, could you do that for me once more, but just suck less? Okay, act sad. Cut, cut, cut. That was terrible. Okay, we should be done in about 10 minutes, guys. You can, you can fix that in post, right? Be more mad. And that is going to do it for this week. As always, if there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes of this episode. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire more and or better equipment. Maybe we can have guests down the line but I can't do that if I can't afford a second microphone. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got a merch store open, which you can also check out at the link in the show notes. There's a little something there for everybody. Next week, we're covering the producer, and there are many different responsibilities, types, and controversies. If you have any questions you'd like answered about this job or any of the others I'm covering this month, make sure to reach out and I'll do my best to answer them in the episode or in the future if I decide to do this again. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.